seated. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus is enough. Lord, I pray that today as we open your word that that would be true for us. That we would be so transformed, so enamored with Jesus that we wouldn't need anything else. That whatever this world would offer us wouldn't be enough for us. We would be willing to say Jesus is enough. That this stuff, this world is not my home. Lord, but Jesus is the one who will carry me through and Jesus will be enough for me for eternity. So make that true in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45, beginning with verse 16. As we continue on in our series in Genesis, just to catch you up and remind you, reconciliation has happened. We're finally there where reconciliation has actually happened. Where Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, now has reconciled with his brothers. But God does not leave a reconciled people and just go, hey, good job, that was great. Now we... Just move on to the next story. No, God's work of reconciliation is always for a purpose. It's always to push the redemption story forward. It's always to push us forward to what he's doing globally. And so if you think about what God's doing here, it's really a microcosm of everything that God has been doing in the gospel for his kingdom and his whole redemption plan throughout all of history. And so today my hope is that you'll see through this reconciliation story that not only does reconciliation uh, renew relationships and not only that does it bring you to repentance and more faith and forgiveness but also it restores and revives the heart and puts us in a place where God reveals himself and his plan and, and how we're to live in it that is always pushing us forward I don't know about you but sometimes I feel very stuck I don't know if anybody else feels that way kind of stuck if you know what I mean where you're kind of in this place where things are just grinding away imagine Joseph 20 years in Egypt, or at least for the first 12, it's pretty stuck, right? I mean, every injustice that could possibly happen is happening to him. Nothing good seems to be happening. Even when the good is happening, he's still a slave and he's still in prison. So remember his story, he was sold into slavery, he goes into slavery, and while in slavery in Potiphar's house, he's made in charge of the whole house. But Potiphar's wife tells a lie about him, gets him thrown in prison, now he's in prison, now in justice again. And as he's in prison, he rises in the ranks in prison. He becomes the, the servant of the captain of the guard. So he's the top prisoner in the entire prison. Things are going well because God is with him. God is prospering him. And yet, even in there, uh, when two of Pharaoh's prime people, his his agents come in and they're thrown in prison, he he interprets their dreams for them. Things seem like, hey, I'm going to get out of here, but he's forgotten for another couple of years. More injustice. It seems like he's just grinding away and he's not moving anywhere. It seems like nothing in this story is ever going to push us forward. Then Pharaoh has a dream. And all of a sudden, Joseph is remembered and Joseph is brought out to interpret the dream and God because of his presence and his power, gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dream. And as he interprets the dream, he's then put in charge of all of Egypt. So Pharaoh's on the throne and everything else is Joseph's. And as Joseph is ruling over Egypt, he rules over seven years of plenty, seven years of harvest. And now we're a couple of years into, into the famine. And people are dying of hunger, but Egypt has food. So back home... In Canaan, Joseph's father sends the brothers to go buy food from Egypt. And they show up, of course, 
in front of Joseph. They don't recognize Joseph. He looks very Egyptian now, shaved head, shaved beard. Doesn't look Hebrew at all. But Joseph remembers his brothers, and he recognizes them. And in the midst of this whole interchange that we have for a couple of chapters, you have the brothers being brought by God to repentance, to, to admit their sin and to turn from it, to to their sorrow over sin, their fear over their sin. And Joseph is brought to a place of of extending forgiveness towards them and mercy towards them. Joseph is brought to more faith in God's plan, not just God's plan, but the plan, the, the God who made the plan, the goodness of God. He, he knows the plan's got to be good because God is good. And the brothers are brought to a place of faith that brings them to repentance where they're able to admit their wrong and lay themselves at the mercy of Joseph. And now, in front of Joseph, right at the end of the last passage last week, Reconciliation happens. The brother's sorrow over sin meets Joseph's forgiveness and mercy. And Joseph falls on them with kisses and with love, and they're restored. They're reconciled. And it's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. All we bring to God is our, is our sin and our guilt. And He pours mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon us. It's, it's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. And now, what do you do with that? Where do we go from here? Great. Now, they got food. They're taken care of. But what does Joseph say? Joseph says, you got to go get dad and bring him into Egypt. But there's a problem. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was given a promise that he would be given a land. And the land was Canaan. Now they got to leave the land in order to go to Egypt. But God's always been working to establish a people in his place. Under his rule and blessing, he's establishing this kingdom. He's restoring what happened all the way back in Eden when he created his people and placed them in a garden, his place, and they were under his rule and blessing. He told them to go be fruitful and multiply and inhabit the earth. And now he's restoring that. How's this going to work if he takes us out of the land that he's promised us? This is, these are all the things that are happening right now. And I want you to hear this very plainly. Reconciliation is never meant to leave you where you are. Reconciliation is always meant to push you forward in God's redemptive plan, to be agents of reconciliation to others, to actually be restored, to be revived. So while reconciliation requires repentance that leads to transformation, and while reconciliation requires an understanding of God's goodness and His plan in order to be able to forgive. Reconciliation is not an end unto itself. God is not reconciling people to Himself through Jesus just so that we can be reconciled. He's reconciling us so that we can go out and offer reconciliation to the rest of the world so that we can be a part of His redemptive plan to the rest of the world. And that's what we're going to see here is reconciliation actually changes people. It restores and revives And it reveals God's plan. So that's what I want you to see today. My prayer is that as we look at God's word, these things would be clear to us. So look at verse 16, beginning of chapter 45, verse 16. It says this, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So, So much crying, so much happiness, so many hugs, so many kisses, so much excitement over reconciliation that the word gets to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is excited about this. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. This is what he says. He says, Go get your dad and all of your family and bring them to Egypt. Tell them they can come to Egypt and that they'll be taken care of. Not only will we provide their needs, we're going to give them the best of the best. 
And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. I just love the total reversal that's happened here. Remember how Joseph got to Egypt? He had a coat of many colors. He had fancy clothes. And the fancy clothes kind of set him apart among his brothers, and his brothers hated him. So what they do, they sold him for silver. (laughs) And now Joseph is sending back fancy clothes and a whole bunch of silver. And he's heaping it all on Benjamin. And he's giving it all to Benjamin, his full brother, and all the half-brothers. This is a really interesting test for them going back to Canaan, isn't it? You got Benjamin here, and you got 300 shekels of silver and all his fancy clothes. He's still the favorite. We're still lesser than. We're not equal to these guys. Joseph is in control of all of Egypt, and Benjamin gets all the nice stuff. Jealousy could be a big part of what happens here, but what's the hope we have? The hope we have is that in this process of reconciliation, they've truly repented and been transformed. This is going to be a great test of their transformation. And so he heaps all this upon Benjamin in this total reversal of how he even got to Egypt. And to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Why did he keep all this up? Why did he send all of this stuff with the brothers to his father? We can imagine these ne'er-do-well brothers, they show up, and they've got a whole bunch of new clothes, and they've got a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, or let's say they go without all that stuff, and they just go back and they, they try to tell Dad, hey, guess what? Joseph is alive, and he's over all of Egypt. Well, Jacob's learned at this point not to trust his sons. So what does Joseph do? He sends a whole bunch of stuff with them to prove the point. This is for your good. Come to Egypt. This is how God is providing for you. And then he says, this is my favorite part of the entire passage. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. It may have been a couple of decades, but he knows his brothers pretty well. Right? He knows what's going to happen because by their nature, they got all this good stuff going back, and they're probably dividing it up in their minds. Well, I'm the firstborn, so I should get this cut. Right? Benjamin's got five extra pairs of clothes and 300, so he doesn't really need anything from the wagons. Right? You can imagine how all of the good gifts that are being sent back to them, if they begin to quarrel among themselves, are going to become burdens. All the things that are meant to make their life better, all the blessings that they're going to get, all of a sudden become burdens because they quarrel over them. They've been reconciled, and yet now all the blessings can become burdens if they begin to quarrel. I I just want to stop as a little aside here. Do you realize if you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament how much of those time is spent in those letters telling people who have been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ to stop quarreling? And this is a little microcosm of being a Christian. We've had reconciliation accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. We had all kinds of blessings heaped onto us. In fact, the Bible calls it every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is heaped upon us. And what do we do? Well, it's not fair. I didn't get as much as that guy. We begin to quarrel among ourselves. The Bible would tell us we, we want and do not have, so we quarrel. That's why we steal. That's why we quarrel. That's why there are 
fights among us is because we want and do not have. Joseph looks at his brothers and said, you got all this stuff, don't let it ruin you. You've been changed, you've been transformed, don't let it ruin you. Oh, how quickly the blessings that come from God can become a burden when we only look at the blessings and forget about God himself. So they're, re- they're returning, reconciled to Joseph. And he's telling them, now be reconciled to one another. Be reconciled to one another. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb because he did not believe them. Don't blame him. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then we come to this really, really exciting portion of Scripture with all the names. Right? You always love it when I get to the name portions of Scripture, don't you? Why, after all of this excitement of restoration and revival and reconciliation, does God throw in a whole bunch of names here? It's all the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Why why is all this here? It's here to remind us that God is keeping His promises. Remember the promise that was given to Abraham? Abraham who was old, with a wife who was old and barren. Abraham who, uh, who had said of him that he was basically dead. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be the father of many nations. And he's an old man with a barren wife. How's that going to happen? Fast forward several generations. Here's what God has done. Here's what God has done in just a few generations. These people are Abraham's descendants. This is God keeping his promise. And they're going to go into Egypt. And I want you to know this. The 70 that are going to go into Egypt are going to turn into about 2 million who come out. This is what God is doing. God is reminding his people as they are getting ready. And remember who this is written by and to. Moses is writing this hundreds of years later. And he's writing it to a people who are going to go into the land who have just been brought out of Egypt. And he's telling them, 70 went in, look around, the 2 million of you just came out. And God's going to restore you and send you back into the land. So the 70 that went in, this is what their names were. These are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, 
the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died at the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Panan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether with his, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Arai, Erodai, and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, and Ishvai. Bariah with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Gunai, uh, Jezer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. This is a beautiful reminder that God has made a people and he's continuing to make a people. But we are not done with the story yet. Folks, this is a problem I think we run into as believers so often as we look back at the cross and we hear Jesus say, it is finished, and we think that he's finished. No, he finished the work of reconciliation. He finished the work of saving us. He finished the work of making us his people, of purchasing us by his blood. But he didn't finish. He's not done with us yet. He's not done accomplishing his purposes. He's not done building his kingdom. And so we need to remember through this story that God is reconciling so that he can revive and restore and reveal his will and his purpose so that we can be a part of those things. So I want you to see today that reconciliation restores. You you see the generosity of Joseph and Pharaoh as they heap on the brothers wagons and stuff to take home. This is supposed to serve as a proof to dad that Joseph is alive, but it's also a blessing to the family. And they're told, bring them to Egypt. Pharaoh says, bring them to Egypt and they'll get the fat of the land. Don't worry about your stuff. You don't need to bring it with you. I'm going to give you all the best stuff of Egypt. This is, this is God utilizing two human agents to accomplish his purpose. And the purpose that he has here is really fascinating. He's restoring the promises and the blessings of Eden go all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis, when God created humanity, when God created Adam and Eve, he told them, male and female, to go be fruitful and multiply and inhabit the earth. He told them to go subdue the earth. He said, every good thing to eat is here in the garden. Just don't eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every good thing here is yours to eat. And imagine what it all tasted like in Eden. I love pineapple. I really like pineapple. But I cannot eat pineapple in Powhatan, Virginia. Can't do it. 
Totally can't do it. Can't go to Food Lion and buy a pineapple and eat it. Just can't do it. This, it, it just isn't the same. I have been ruined for pineapple. I went to Corn Island, Nicaragua and ate pineapple. I can't eat it in Powhatan anymore. I think the closest thing to eating food in Eden is going to Corn Island, Nicaragua and eating pineapple. That's what I believe. I think it's astounding. Imagine what the food in Eden tasted like before corruption and sin and curse had begun to distort our taste buds and distort the food and the plants and the pollution and all. Imagine what Eden's pineapples tasted like. This is what Pharaoh is doing. Pharaoh is being used by God. Unbeknownst to Pharaoh, God is reestablishing. He's restoring the blessing of Eden. He's saying, you get all the fat of the land. Come on in. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be here under my care. And I'm going to make sure you have all the best. One day, that's going to be true of all of us who are in Christ Jesus. One day we're going to be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing for eternity. And you know what He's offering us? You know what He's planning to give us? You know what He promises us? A feast unlike any other. With the choicest of foods. Here in a microcosm, we have a picture of what's going to happen in reality for all of God's people. We have a picture here of how God is restoring the blessing of Eden. He's also restoring the covenant with Abraham. He promises He promises Jacob that I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you and I will make you a great nation. Chapter 46, verse 3. I will make you into a great nation while you're in Egypt. He's restoring this covenant. He's restoring the relationship of God's people to each other. He he tells the brothers, do not quarrel. He's taken brothers who have been at each other forever, their entire life, and he's brought them together. You go back to Eden, what was happening? Adam and Eve were living in bliss, naked, walking around. Completely fine. Everything was great. Sin enters the picture. Their relationship breaks. What's God doing? God's restoring the relationship of His people. He's working to restore. He doesn't just reconcile us to Himself. That's the great work of the Gospel, but He continues the work of reconciling us and restoring us to one another. That's a beautiful reality. So now we have this picture. We've been reconciled to God so we can reconcile. We can forgive one another. We've been forgiven so we can forgive. We've been reconciled so we can reconcile. We've been loved so we can love. We've been served so we can serve. This is what God is doing in His people. He's restoring His people. This generosity of Joseph and Pharaoh is restoring this blessing and this covenant and this relationship and ultimately the position of God's people in His kingdom. We're at a point in the story where Jacob's family is so broken that there is absolutely no way anybody looking in on this story would think these people could be used by God. No way. You've got one brother sleeping with his daughter-in-law, right? You've got prostitutes, you've got murder, you've got all kinds of things in this family. No way this broken, segmented family could be used by God. But what does God do? God reestablishes His people. He restores His people into their position so that now this 70 people is God's remnant of His people that will be used from that point on to build a new nation, to build a new people for Himself. 
We may be small. In a world of 7 billion people, the true believers in Christ may be a small number. God is using us to establish His kingdom. That's what He's doing. Everything that we see here is a picture of what God is doing. I love the fact that in this... In these symbols, these two major symbols we see here, clothing and food. Isn't it really fascinating how God uses this? He, here through Pharaoh and Joseph, they're given new clothes. Each of them is given new, new clothes. So they go back with the Egyptians' finest silk, right? They go back all decked out, ready to go home. Dad, when they get home, is probably going, what are you wearing, Right? You think that coat of many colors was impressive? Imagine the clothing they brought from Pharaoh's court. So they go home in new clothes. They go home with choice foods. They're promised the choices of foods. I just want to remind you what Jesus has promised you. At the end of this story, there's going to be a day when we are with him for eternity. You know what we get? The choices of foods and new clothes. He's going to dress us in white for eternity, washed by the blood of the Lamb, completely pure and clean, sin no more. We're not going to have any needs that aren't taken care of. We're not going to have any hunger because He's going to take care of every bit of it. He's going to be the bread that causes us to never hunger again and He's going to continue to feed us with the choicest foods. He's going to lay before us a, a wedding feast of epic proportions, something you've never seen before. And he's going to feed us and He's going to clothe us. Can we not trust Him to do that now? Think about what Jesus said. Look at the lilies of the field. They're clothed better than Solomon, but they don't toil for it. Don't worry about it. Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father, He he feeds them. Does He not love you more than He loves the birds and the flowers? He says, don't worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat. Your heavenly Father already knows your needs before you can even know your needs and you can give voice to them. He says, seek first the kingdom. That's what he tells us to do. Seek first the kingdom. He's going to take care. He's not just going to give us the bare bones. He's going to ultimately give us this beautiful feast and these new clothes. Think of an even more intimate picture. Remember the story of the prodigal son. This is you and I. This is where we fall into this picture. We're either the son who stayed home and tried to do everything right and looks down on the brother who ran off, and in the end, ends up looking down on our father for restoring and reconciling with the younger brother or with the younger brother who sinned and ran off. But think about that younger brother. Think about that younger brother who's wallowing, literally wallowing in his sin. And when he comes home, what does his father do? His father runs to him. And his father takes off his cloak and he gives it to his son and he clothes him in these new clothes. He gives him his ring and he sets him apart. He establishes him. He reconciles and restores him. This is the picture of what God's doing here in this microcosm, in this one instance, giving us a picture of what God's going to do in the rest of his redemption story for us, his people. 
Reconciliation restores, but reconciliation also revives. It revives the heart. I love when the brothers get home and they come to Jacob and they come to Dad and they say, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. His initial reaction was not, what? Wow! His initial reaction is numbness because he didn't believe them. But then he sees all that they bring with him. And listen to what he says. Chapter 45, verse 28. It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. How could he say that? It's enough. He says it because in verse 27, we're told this. The spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Before, what we read of Jacob is if you go down there and Benjamin gets left behind or I lose another son, this gray hair will be taken down into Sheol. That's what he keeps saying. He keeps, he's, he's wallowing in the dirt. He's sitting in the dirt of his tent just waiting to die. That's where he is. He says, go get us food because we're all going to waste away. He says, you're losing brothers left and right. You guys are worthless. I'm done. The promises of God seem like they've left him. The faith that has carried him is now gone. The hope has been replaced by hopelessness. And in this one moment, when he sees the grandeur of what God has done, his spirit, his heart is revived. Jacob's heart is revived. His hope is revived. Chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. Israel took his journey. So he gets up and he says, I'm going. I'm going to go. So they get up and they leave. And he goes to Beersheba. Beersheba is right at the border. Beersheba is the last place before leaving the promised land, before leaving Canaan to go on the long trek to Egypt. And he stops at Beersheba. It's a holy place to his forefathers. And what does he stop and do? He stops there and remembers and worships and offers sacrifices to the God of his fathers. And there his hope is restored. His heart's been restored by Joseph being alive. His hope is restored by the presence of God. His faith is restored to a place where he's now resolved to go to Egypt and to finish his life there. And his worship is restored. I love this picture of restoration that happens here. Pay attention to what God's doing. God spoke to Israel, verse 2, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid and go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. There is a resolve now that's going to enter Jacob's life that he's going to go to Egypt. Where does that resolve come from? That resolve comes from what God reveals to him. God's presence, God's power. God's promises, all are going to give him the freedom to believe, to trust, to hope again, to be revived in this reconciled relationship with his son. I want you to pay attention to this. How many chapters has it been since we've actually read about one of the people here making sacrifices and worshiping? What used to be commonplace among Abraham's family now is rarely mentioned. And here at Beersheba, he returns to worshiping the Lord. He returns to making sacrifices, to praising the Lord for His goodness. When revival happens in our hearts, our, our hope restores, our, our, our faith is restored and revived, our, our resolve to obey and follow God is revived and restored. But 
ultimately our worship is restored. We begin to please the Lord with our worship and with our sacrifice of praise. Reconciliation restores and reconciliation revives, but reconciliation also reveals God's plan. Reconciliation could have happened in Canaan, right? I mean, surely God in His power could have just said, okay, Joseph, you're going to come home. Bring the wagons. In fact, you know all the people in Egypt so well that why don't you bring the wagons and we'll just keep going regularly to get wagon loads from Egypt. I mean, restore. Like, let's get the family. Let's stay in the promised land. But God's redemptive plan was not going to work like that. God's redemptive plan was going to take them through slavery. God's redemptive plan was going to take them through hardship. God's redemptive plan was going to provide for their every need, every need but it was, He was going to do it in a way that they would never expect. He was going to put them in the middle of a pagan land. He was going to put them as a small group of people. It's a small family, and He was going to turn them into something massive that would have a global impact. He was going to do all of this in a way that they could never have pretended to understand. But when God reconciles us, God revives us and God restores us. He also reveals to us that we're part of a larger plan than just us. He never reconciles us just to stay where we are, but to always move us forward in his redemptive plan. Look at verses 3 and 4. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. God's presence is going to be revealed here to Jacob that God is always going to be with them. This was Joseph's hope. This was Joseph's only recourse in all of his time in Egypt is that the Lord was with him. And God makes the promise again to Jacob as he's made before, I will be with you. God's presence is revealed here, helping to revive and to restore. God's commitment to His promises is made here. He says, I will make you into a great nation. It would seem that if you're taking us out of the land, God, because in order to be a nation, we're going to need people and we're going to need land. It would seem that if you're taking us out of the land, it's going to be really hard for you to make us into a nation. But God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make you a nation. While you're in Egypt, I'm going to make you into a great nation. His commitment to His promises has never changed, and He reveals that. God reveals His future deliverance. He says, I will go down with you to Egypt. And He said, I will also bring you up again. He says, I'm not going to leave you in the pagan land. I'm not going to leave you in a place that I haven't promised you. I'm going to bring you back to the promises. I'm going to bring you back and deliver you. This is going to establish His people for generations. Go forward generations to Moses writing this to the people who are, have just left Egypt. And God is saying, I'm with you as I'm bringing you out of Egypt. I'm with you as you go into the land. I'm with you. It's a reminder that God is with His people, that His reconciliation restores us and revives us, but also it means His presence is always with us. God is delivering His people, which should, which should give peace to endure. Peace in the midst of suffering and waiting even peace in the midst of death. And that's why I think chapter or verse 4 is here. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I'll also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Is that talking about? It's talking about Jacob's death that will come. When your 
not going to die apart from your family. You're not going to die in obscurity. You're going to die and you're going to be taken care of and it's going to be worth it because you're seeing your people established and you're seeing my promises come true. You can die in faith knowing that I hold you and I've got you secure. See, when reconciliation restores us and revives us and reveals God's plan that He's never going to leave us or forsake us, Believer in Christ today, you can know that if you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, that the end of the story is yours to possess. You're going to get there. You're going to get there. All of the good that's coming is you're going to get there. But in the middle of all of that, as you're walking through a pagan land, as you're in exile, as even in hardship and trials and suffering, in the middle of a world that hates God, what do you do with that? How do you live? How do you live with the promises in the future and all the fulfillment, all of the good in the past? What do you do now? Because I'll tell you, it's easy in here. It's really easy in here. It's really easy in here for us to trust His Word. It's really easy in here for us to find God is restoring the blessing and the covenant. God is reviving my heart. I can sing songs and I can feel something. But then I walk out those doors and life smacks me right in the face. Doesn't it? Reality. It's almost like this doesn't get to be reality for long. But I want you to know this is more real than anything out there because this is more long-lasting than anything out there. We will for eternity be gathered worshiping the Lord. This that's out there will not last forever. All the trials one day will end. All the suffering one day will end. All the sickness one day will end. And reconciliation that restores us to God and His promises revives our hearts to be able to trust Him and worship Him, reveals to us that God is with us and He's keeping His promises and He's going to deliver us even from this evil age. Here's what it does. Reconciliation leads us to faith, not fear. Because it would be really easy to walk out those doors and be fearful. Because we're small in number. We're small in number. In a world of 7 billion people. And it seems like the true followers of Christ take up a smaller and smaller percentage every day. And it would be really easy to walk around out there in fear. But our God says He's with us. Our God says He's with us. He's with me when I go down into Egypt. And when I'm in Egypt in the middle of this pagan land, He's going to make us into a great nation. He's making for Himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. He's going to make us great for His purposes. And He's going to deliver us out. He's going to be with us when He brings us out too. He's going to deliver us to the promised land, the land of our inheritance, and we're going to be with Him forever. So I don't, I don't have to fear. I don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. I can be walking in faith, not fear. Though we are small in number, though we are in a pagan world, and even though we haven't fully received all of the fulfillment of the promises, He's with us. He's with us. A little while ago we sang, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords 
today. My prayer is that not only could we sing that in this room, but we could live it and say it when we walk through those doors. Because believer, that's what's going to give you the strength to take the next step of obedience in faith. And the next step after that of obedience in faith is that Jesus is enough. That's really the question. Do you want the wagons full of stuff? Or do you want Jesus? Is he enough? Believer, he's enough. There's no need to fear. Because there's nothing you could ever do or not do that would cause him to lose his grip on you. He's with you. He's promised it, so it's true. He's good, so the promise is good. If you're here today and you you say, I like the wagons. (laughs) The wagons are very attractive. In fact, I wish the world would keep giving me more wagons. Here's what I want you to know. The wagons will get you through this famine, but not through the next one. The wagons will give you enough to survive today, but they won't they won't keep you for eternity. They may bring you joy in the moment, but they aren't going to bring you fulfillment and sustenance and everything you need forever. The wagons will easily become things to use to quarrel over. They'll easily become idols in your heart that you'll want to keep holding on to those wagons and I don't want anybody else to have my wagons and I wish I had a nicer wagon. And they'll never fulfill you. They'll never hold you. They'll never secure you. They'll never restore you. They'll never revive you. And you'll find yourself in a wagon with a whole bunch of stuff you think it's enough and Jesus has promised every spiritual blessing in him wagons of earthly goods that will burn up versus everything God owns which one can sustain you and which one's enough everything God has is given to you in Jesus He's holding nothing back. He loved you so much that in your sin, He sent His Son to die in your place. So what does it take right now? It takes, I don't need the wagons. I need Jesus. It takes, I don't, I don't need to stock, stack up my wagons versus other people's wagons, my good works, my deeds, my stuff. I don't need to say, look how successful I am. I need Jesus. It, it says... I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Believer, can you say that? And today, if you can't say that, my prayer for you is that you would hear this good news. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He reconciled you to God. To restore you, to revive you, to give you hope. And to give you a future. Oh, that you would trust Him.
I'd love to talk to you after the service. There are many here who would be willing to talk to you after the service to tell you of the hope that's found in Jesus. The security that's found in Jesus. The salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation that's found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Would you just call out to Jesus? Jesus, reconcile me to God. I, I know I'm a sinner. Reconcile me to God through your death, through your resurrection, through your life. I'd rather have you than anything. Father, we praise you that you will never leave us or forsake us. Now help us to walk like that's true. Not in fear, but in faith. As your people. Do your work among us. For those of us who are believers, do the work of changing us, of transforming us, of making us more and more like Jesus, to trust Jesus, to desire Jesus, to treasure Jesus above all things. Lord, I pray the same work for those who would not proclaim Christ today. That you would do what only you can do. That's change their heart and their mind. We thank you for Jesus. He is enough. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me if you would. As we go, we go out as God's people. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to talk to you. We have others. Alec is in the back. I know he'd talk to you in a heartbeat. And there are others around you. Just grab the person next to you. Tell me more about Jesus. So we want to walk out of here, out those doors with the same hope we sing of while we're in here. Amen? We want, to, we, want to, we want to walk out with the same faith we proclaim in here. Not in fear, but in faith. Let's walk out and proclaim His excellencies. But you are a chosen race. Amen. Enjoy your day. I hope to see you back this evening. Six o'clock, bring a brown bag, dinner. It could be a white bag from Wendy's. That's fine, too. But come back, 6.30, members meeting. Start a movie around 7.30.